You're listening to On the Couch with Carly. Carly's Couch is a safe space to talk. I'm a psychologist, but I'm not your pipe smoking, tweed wearing stereotype. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On the Couch with Carly. I'm Carly, and I'm on my own today. I've been doing some interviews, and I'm really excited about some interviews coming up. But today, I'm just on my own in my little studio down the pole from Carly's Couch HQ, and I'm going to be talking to you directly. Today's topic is an interesting one that I have been reflecting on because I guess it's something that people still ask me about all the time and I've written a few blog posts about it. If you're interested, you can go on to onthecouchwithcarly.com and search for the topic. Um, it's The topic today is, if I want to become a psychologist, what do I need to know? What is the process? Um, what do I need to know about the interview process when you get into master's, um, the selection process? How do you become a psychologist? I'm a, I'm a student and I want to know what the process is. That's, that's basically the topic for today. Um, and I'm going to be running you through mostly the, the ideas that I shared in the, in the original blog posts um, with some additional ideas that I'm having at the moment. Um, and I really hope that if you are interested in studying psychology or thinking about becoming a psychologist, that you listen to this or if you know people who are and you, you you want them to hear this, please send this along to them because um, I do think that people don't really talk about their professions a lot. They don't talk about how, they, how you get into that profession. Um, and psychology is probably the most sort of mythical, mystical um, selection process. I, I mean, really, there are so many misconceptions about what a psychologist is and how do you train to become a psychologist and what kind of a person do you have to be to become a psychologist. And because Carly's Couch is all about breaking down those stereotypes and saying, actually, who you think is a psychologist or who you think needs to be a psychologist or should be a psychologist is very often not the case. And and I'm, you know, I represent that as that... I'm not maybe your typical psychologist and and that's fine because actually that's one of the myths is that there is such a thing as a typical psychologist. Okay, so I'm going to start today by talking about what is the process of becoming a psychologist. Um, so when you start studying, first of all, I, th- I don't think it really matters what you... Um, or like what your interests are in high school, you don't have to really have already had an interest in therapy or counseling or being being a, a student counselor or anything. Um, you know, but what you do need is you do need to be able to get into university. So that's a prerequisite. And you need to have certain um, courses. So as far as I know, you need to have maths, at a higher grade level or have a university exemption with maths being one of your subjects and you need to have either science or biology. That's as far as I know, but I do stand to be corrected. But what I would say to you is if you are a student in school, if, you, if you're currently trying to do, if you're trying to finish your, your high school and it could be that you're an adult and you are trying to do your matric or you're going, you've gone to an FET college and you're trying to get a matric um, 
pass so that you can get into a university course or tertiary institution, I would just look into what subjects you need in order to get into that course that you're looking for. That goes across the board for any course, but with with psychology in particular. So check out who are the universities that you're applying for and what are their um, acceptance criteria. Okay, so now let's say you get into university and you want to study psychology. Now, the interesting thing about psychology as an undergraduate program is that it's a huge, huge, um, it's a huge program, lots and lots of students. I mean, when I was studying, there were probably about 300 students in Psych 101. It's maybe even more than that now. It's probably like three times that much, um, if not more. So there, it's a, it's a really um, sought after course in the beginning because well, this is what I believe. I believe that psychology is sort of we're naturally gravita- we naturally gravitate towards studying psychology. This is obviously for people who are in the humanities department, so um, well, the humanities faculty. So this means that you already have established that you you're not going to go the route of um, you know you're not go- you go not going the finance route or you're not going the art route. You want to be in the humanities de- faculty. And then psychology is one of the courses that you can do um, as a as one of your majors potentially. And people are naturally self interested, right? We we want it's a I think it's a quality of humanity. We're we're self interested. We want to know about ourselves. That's why we like to watch reality TV shows. That's why we like to watch, you know, those medical stories where we get to see human stories because we find ourselves fascinating, actually. And and why not? We are a fascinating species. Um, so I do think that there is a huge um, pool to, to study psychology in the beginning. And so it's, it's a very big um, cohort that are going to be in those first three years of, of university studying psychology. Um, and it actually gets smaller and smaller. So the first year, Psych 101, a lot of people study that. Um, it's actually the most boring course, for sure. It's like mostly history. <laughs> it's mostly like the history of psychology, who came up with which theories. It's like broad principles. It's, um, yeah, it's it's really quite boring and more of like a timeline of 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 psychology and where it, where it started and where it's where it's going and what it's done um so it's only really in second year and I think in third year where things start to get really interesting where you start talking about you get you know more interesting subjects like psychopathology where you start to learn about um you know the different psychological disorders bipolar schizophrenia depression and you you know, that's also fascinating. And of course, there's this classic trope of everyone sits in class and self-diagnoses, you know, like, oh gosh, I'm a narcissist. For sure, I'm a narcissist. Although that's classic, right? And someone diagnosing themselves with narcissism. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so that's that's the fun stuff, actually, is that is that um, that kind of learning where it's quite, um, it's interesting and it's it's kind of, piques your natural curiosity. Um, and then things start to get a bit more serious when you start learning stats in third year. I think this is how it is. I can't actually remember it's been that long. Um, but basically, the real crunch time comes in where you have to get into honors. So um, I'm not going to speak for all universities now because I don't actually know. I only went to UCT, the University of Cape Town. And the way it works there is you 
um, have to get really, really good marks to get into psychology honors. And so they're really only interested in people who are academically incredibly, incredibly high achieving. Um, so I remember that was the big thing was in f- second and third year, you really needed to get good marks. Um, and that was in order to get into honors. And you have to do honors in order to get into masters. So it's a little bit of like, a, it's quite a big hoop that you have to jump in, jump through. And then honors is quite a stressful year. It's very, very academically pressured. There's a lot of work and many deadlines. And it's it's a big jump from undergrad to postgrad. So now you are really sort of running with the big dogs um, and having to produce work at a, at a fast rate, um, you're doing, re, you know, research for the first time. You've got to, you've got to, um, produce a thesis at the end of the year and, and do a presentation of your thesis at the end of the year. So it's a, it's really a, a good taste of the postgraduate experience. And it's very intense. It's not clinically, um, driven at all. It's all academic. And then it's obviously the research as well. And then during that, honors year, if you're going to go straight into master's, you will um, apply for master's during that year. And and that's quite interesting. But you don't have to apply for master's straight away. You can do other things in your in your life. And so this is kind of what I wanted to talk to you about today. So let's say you have done psychology um, as an undergraduate study, and now you want to become a psychologist. You've decided that it's not just enough to have a psychology background and go into uh, marketing because that's a, a, a lot of people do that as well. And that's absolutely useful to have a psychology undergraduate and then go into marketing and do a marketing diploma or degree. Or some people decide to become lawyers or some people decide to go a completely different route or maybe they go to the social work route. But if you decide that you actually want to be a clinical psychologist or a psychologist, there's various other um, categories, which I'll tell you about now, then you have to do a master's degree. And so then then you have to do the, the, the master's selection. And this is where things really are competitive. So for example, in our year, there were 40 people who were doing psychology honors at UCT. And only eight people got selected for psychology masters. And those eight people were not all from the psychology honors program. They were from other universities, other provinces. So they're they're actually selecting eight out of hundreds of applicants. So it's a very, very, very competitive thing and very hard to get into. And so there's a lot of stress and pressure and anxiety about that. And people who want to become psychologists will ask me, I mean, this is a question I've gotten so many times. How did you get in? What is the secret formula? Wow, I wish I knew how to get in. Tell me what you did. What was what was it that, you know, got got you through the door? And I think it's a worthy question because of course it would be really convenient and nice to have like a like a magic formula. Um but it's obviously not the case. So I wanted to just um go through some of the things today that I that I've heard people speak about that are like the myths of what what makes someone um, qualify f- for psychology masters what what gets you in the door to do the psychology masters program 
Now, obviously, this is my experience. I'm not in any way equipped to say what everybody else's experience will be or how the criteria, how the um, selection process works at the moment. I was selected in 20, when was it? 2009, was that when I got selected? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. So that's how long ago it was. It was you know, so I'm not going to say what I'm, what I'm about to say is irrelevant, but just accept that it is an experience that I had quite a long time ago and things might have changed a little bit. And I'll tell you about how I think they might have changed um, at the end. But what I wanted to address was some of the myths because I think it's really important because it speaks to some of the myths about what we think psychologists are about. And I also think it's really important to hear about why, what I think makes a good psychologist. What I, why do people, why are some people meant to be psychologists and others not? Okay, so the first thing I want to say is, before we go ahead, I am talking specifically about clinical masters, okay? So cl the clinical psychology program at UCT. I don't know about the other categories. In South Africa, we have a few different categories of psychologists. We have counseling psychologists. We have educational psychologists. We have neuropsychologists. We have research psychologists. And I hope I haven't forgotten any. Um, and we have registered counselors and psychometrists. And I'm not going to go into the difference between these categories. Just all that, all that you have to know is that they, that they do vary in terms of their scope of practice. They vary in terms of their, what you study when you, when you, when you train to be one of these psychologists. And they vary in what you can charge a, a patient according to, um, the health, the health insurance companies. So a clinical psychologist is probably the highest on the food chain in, the ter in terms of how much they can charge according to HBCSA and um, Discovery Health, for example. But that doesn't mean that clinical psychologists are better than, than counseling psychologists. It doesn't mean that they're better trained or that they are better able to do therapy than educational psychologists. Um, both counseling and educational psychologists also offer therapy. Um, we just have a different, slightly different training and have slightly dif different scopes of practice. But you can go into that in your own time. I'm not going to spoon feed you those right now. Okay. So I want to talk about clinical psychology in particular today. And I want to talk to you about what I've understood as being some of the myths around who is selected to become a clinical psychologist and who, um, you know, who, who do they choose to be um to become psychologists all right so myth number one is that you have to be old so um this is an interesting one um i guess the the theory is that they don't take young students into masters or that they wouldn't take you sort of straight out of university if all you if all you've done is gone from matric to university and to and straight into masters um I don't think that's true and I don't think that's I don't think any institution would have that as a rule but I do think that life experience matters a lot and and this is what's really interesting is that you can be really young and have had quite a life that you've experienced a diverse um a diverse array of life experiences you've 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 not just been sheltered or had um you know a very limited experience that you've that you've 
um, encountered many different aspects of life. And yes, I think, you know, having some form of suffering or trauma can be of use, but it's not not I mean, not of use, but can be can mean that you have extra life experience. But it's not a, just about having had a difficult life. It's about having had a varied life, a life that's been full, a life that's had that that you've learned different things along the way, not just one thing. Okay, so there there is definitely no such thing as you you're you're too young to become a psychologist i was 24 when i got when i got selected and i do think i'd had quite a, a full life at that point a quite an independent life um and i do think that that counted a lot um i also think it mattered that that i'd been in therapy as well that i that i'd experienced um a therapeutic process a, a depth a, a depth experience like a deep process of therapy Okay. The second myth is that you have to be a straight A student. That's 100% not true. Um, in honors, it's very important that you did very well to get into UCT honors. But some people didn't do UCT honors. They did their honors elsewhere. Some people did their honors through UNISA, which has a very, very different criteria, um, acceptance criteria. So you, you could you could have done honors through UNISA without having the best marks in undergraduate, and then you could still be selected for um, UCT Masters. So you do not have to be an, a straight A student. And I think what they're looking for is not so much that you're a straight A student, but that you are capable of handling a big workload because your master's year is going to be intense and you are going to be taking on a lot and they want to know that you can handle it. But there's certain aspects of a straight A student that doesn't fit well to be a psychologist. So if you're always expecting everything to be neat and fitting into a nice box and done and everything gets done perfectly and neatly, then no, that's not going to work well. Um, because, you know, it's like you need to have some some degree of, of flexibility in your, in your own personality. You can't expect everything to be perfect all the time. And it's actually very difficult if you, ex if you expect things to be perfect. So... Um, yeah, so just wanted to say that in, in, in masters, when you're learning to become a psychologist, it's very practical. There is a big portion of it that's academic, but even if you're not extremely academically inclined, that's not the end of the world. You can get into masters, even if you didn't get incredible results. Um, okay. So myth number three is you have to have counseling experience. So that's completely untrue. I had never counseled anyone in my life. I did my first counseling moment in my interview. <laughs> and um, and I, and yeah, I hadn't volunteered. I hadn't done Lifeline. That's just, I'm not trying to brag that I like, it, it, that's just the truth that I hadn't, I hadn't honed that skill when I arrived. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I had practiced. I, I came to the process a, a blank slate. I did not know how to counsel. I did not have an idea of what um, of what I was doing or what, what I should be doing, which I think actually served me because, um, yeah, sure. I remember when I was <laughs> when I was doing my selection interviews. So in the selection process, you get an interview with your with the the selection. Um, panel and then you have to do um, a one-on-one -on -one role play where a master student pretends to be um, 
a client and you have to counsel them in like an initial meeting. And while we were sitting waiting for our interviews, I remember like there was a another guy that was there and he was rehearsing the steps of how to conduct a counseling interview. And it was like starting with introducing yourself and speaking about confidentiality and getting consent. And I was like, oh gosh, I don't know these rules. Like, I don't know these steps. And I was quite a little bit panicked. I was like, oh gosh, what am I doing? Obviously underprepared for this. But in the interview, I just winged it. You know, I just like did it, did my thing. Um, and in the end, it didn't really matter what I had said or not said in that interview because where the magic happens is in the is after the interview someone sits with you and asks you how do you think not by the interview after that role play experience someone sits with you and says how do you think that went what was difficult for you what was a good moment for you and you have to reflect and have insight into the process and that's what they're really looking for okay I'm going to get more into that now The fourth myth is that you have to have volunteer experience. And as I said, I hadn't been a volunteer. And although I do really believe that volunteering can be of benefit, I think it's mostly of benefit because of how it opens you up to new experiences. So if you are someone who does feel like maybe you've lived a very sheltered life, maybe you've only lived at home in one home with your family and then you matriculated and then you went to university and you were always very stable and then you did your honors and now you're going into masters and you're like sure have I even lived like an interesting life or whatever (laughs) you know then maybe it would be useful for you to do the volunteering work because it exposes you to people of different walks of life and in South Africa we have such a massive gap between you know we have a massive wealth gap a privilege gap you know which is which is split over um, economic privilege, um, race privilege. I mean, if you, if a white person in South Africa has had a very different experience from a from a person of color in South Africa, so it is important to know what these communities are dealing with that you are not a part of. So I think in, uh, volunteering can be useful in the sense that you have exposure and f- and see and um, learn about other people's lived experiences um, so that you come into the process with some sense of humility and openness and yeah, just having broadened your awareness. Okay, the fifth myth is about your race. So one of the myths might be that you have to be black, you can't be white, but the opposite could be true as well. Like it could be seen as people who are white seem to be chosen to be psychologists more than people who are black. I'm not actually sure what the myth is at the moment. All I know is that it doesn't necessarily matter. Obviously, there are quotas. Obviously, there's affirmative action. And we need to keep um, we need to keep privileging people of color in every system as much as we can, giving people of color more of a chance to to be included. And I think that's really important. So Every university has to see diversity as a, as a very, very important um, endeavor. But that doesn't mean that white people are not being hired or accepted into programs. So it does not discount you. Um, but I do think that if you, are, if you are a person of color and you're thinking about becoming a, a psychologist, I urge you to keep... 
um, to, to, to do it, to, to find, find funding. Um, it's a difficult course to do because it's very full on and you don't have um, a way to make money on the side. Like I had to take out a loan to do my master's year because I couldn't do the, the jobs that I'd been doing previously to earn some money. So that was very um, eye-opening where I realized that there's a, a major reason why white privileged people are doing courses like psychology because number one, it takes a very long time. You need nine years of your life or eight years of your life to become a psychologist. And for seven of those, let me just get this right. Yeah, six of those, you're not, um, you're not earning. And so people who come from poorer families um, or, pe- or people who, who need to support their family are not going to be able to do those courses. So that's, I think, why a lot of the psychologists tend to be white and privileged because they can afford to take so long to do a, to do a course like that. So if you're a person of color who's thinking about becoming a psychologist and, and you're listening to this, I'm urging you, please don't give up. It is so important. We need more representation in this country. We need more black and brown psychologists. And we need psychologists doing psychology in their own languages. We need language diversity. Um, people really, really want to see their own race across from them when they're talking about their deepest, darkest fears and thoughts and worries. So yes, we really, really do need more diversity in the field. Um, I think that's been improving of late a lot and that's amazing. And I'm so excited about that. Um, but yeah, can, it's really can only get better and better. So although I don't believe anyone's going to be excluded on the basis of race, I just wanted to put that out there. Okay. Oh, and the other thing about that is if you're a man, if you're, if you're a man, I think you also should be, you should be pushing through to try to become a psychologist. There's a real shortage of men in, in psychology. And, um, at least when we when we were studying, there was like only one male for every eight females or something like that. Um, so that was that's quite a big um, difference. And so I would really recommend that that if you're a white male, this might be the one course that you are actually given preference for because um, we really do need men, um, especially for. Uh, young children, like young boys who need therapy, they really look up to older men. So if you have any sort of passion for working with young boys or um, even, you know, youngsters who are no longer children in their early 20s but are struggling, it's so incredible to see how young men respond to older men or even men of of similar ages. But just having a man offer that space and also it's it's de- it debunks the whole concept that only women can be in the caring professions you know that only women can be help can be helpers can help as their main objective because that's not true men are incredibly caring and to, if a, if you're a young boy and you're living in a community where you have where there's lots of absent fathers and you don't see um, positive male role models to have a therapist who's a, ma- a man who then speaks to you as, from a position as a man, but with you know who's caring and kind and compassionate and empathic. That is so so helpful and useful. So okay, that's my that's my soapbox moment. <laughs> okay, 
Then I wanted to say the sixth, the sixth myth is that you have to speak an African language. Um, I don't know if this is true or not anymore, but it was the case that in the criteria did say you had to speak an African language. I think Afrikaans is included in that. I had learned like a little bit of Isikosa back then, um, but I hadn't really, I didn't know a lot. Um, and I still got in. So obviously it's not the absolute be all and end all, but I really, really recommend that anyone in this country should be learning an African language. Um, you know, Isikosa or Isizulu, it's, um, it's kind of a no-brainer that it's so useful to learn that, to be able to speak that language um, with people, even if you can't speak it perfectly, to just try so that if they need to speak in their language that you could maybe understand them a little bit, especially when you're working in the public health sector. Um, and Afrikaans is also really important, especially in the Western Cape and in some other areas like in um, the the East Rand or um, Pretoria up in Gauteng. So I really do recommend that. I think it's such a disability. I feel like I have such a disability as an English person, you know, only having one language. And it's such, it's such arrogance, I feel, to be this English person that expects everyone to speak English. So uh, I'm guilty of that. I'm 100% aware and I and I do I I, sh- I should actually be picking up my Isikosa and doing more of it. Um but if you are interested in 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 speaking Kosa then I would say you need to contact my friend uh Craig at Ubuntu Bridge. Um he's amazing and he has a whole range of courses and yes he's an Umlungu he's a white guy but he um he's obviously got a, a range of teachers that he that that teach for him as well and what he's really good at is because he was a white guy who learned as an adult how to speak Kosa he knows exactly how to teach it for us stupid white tongues you know because it's hard for our tongues okay so myth number seven you have to know everything there is to know about psychological theories or therapeutic techniques um yeah so the thing is I I don't know. Hey, I don't personally I don't think it's important. I don't think that people who are expecting to train you want you to come in an expert. Um I think that it's pretty important to kind of be the blank slate as I mentioned before, to really be open and and curious and wanting to learn and you don't have to know it all. You don't have to know anything. You can say what you don't know. Um yeah, so I I think that it's that it's really about just being comfortable with your with yourself. So even if you don't know something, to be comfortable with that you don't know, to be open to it, and to be humble to say, look, this is what I need to learn. This is this is why I'm here. Yeah, so I guess what I think um, what I think about that is that it's it's at the end of the day what it's really about you know what and it's a frustrating thing but what it's really about is who you are as a person so we think that it's all these things if i just jump through these 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 and these hoops then i can get in then i'll be what they're looking for and at the end of the day as frustrating as it may sound you can't be anyone but who you are and yes you can gain experience which is a very important thing to bring to you but at the but at the end of the day you have to be someone who embodies 
those traits that they're looking for. And every university is different. Every individual on the selection panel will be different. But I think that the major traits of a psychologist are um, openness, curiosity. Um, I think I think being empathic, having a innate ability to understand other human beings is really important. And I think most important, but most importantly, it's about how you reflect on on who you are as well. So self-awareness is everything. So um yeah, I think I think we have to know ourselves. And this is where coming, you know, going into therapy really helps. So um, that's one piece of advice I'll always give you is if you want to become a psychologist, go into therapy yourself and don't just do it once or twice. Really get in there. Go for a year. Um, really establish a relationship with someone. Get to understand what it means to be in a therapeutic relationship because not only are you going to learn by being in the process with someone, but you're going to learn about yourself and you're going to use that insight to make sense of yourself. And that is going to impress a a selection panel more than anything, is that you can make meaning of your experiences and link your experiences so that you can form connections and, and, and work out what are your patterns, what are your blind spots. And that's a really interesting concept. Like, what are your blind spots? What kinds of clients are going to trigger you? What kinds of experiences are going to be experiences that are going to be really, really difficult for you to work with? And that's and that's the interesting thing, right? To be a psychologist, it's not a it's not an easy job. Like, in a way, I remember one of the questions when 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 I was with. Um, I'm not sure if it was in my selection interview, if it was afterwards, but I think it was my selection interview. And, and the person who, who asked me said, why do you want to do this mad job? <laughs> that was literally the question. And I think it's true that we have to really understand this is, what is it that you're after going into this profession? Like, Because it's not all sunshine and roses. Like, Think about yourself on your absolute worst days when you're having your biggest emotions, when you're feeling the most scared or the most traumatized or the most anxious or the most angry. And then think about having to spend time with another human being while they're going through those emotions. Do you and can you be with those aspects of humanity day in and day out? Um, You know, does that feel like something you really want to spend your time doing? And if you're still saying yes at this point, then I would say, then you know what this is. Like, you know that this is this is truly your calling. Um, because the other thing is that nobody, nobody comes into this profession. Well, this is what I believe. Nobody only comes into this profession because they want to help someone. Um, it sounds romantic. And yes, of course... Um, everyone's going to ask you, why do you want to become a psychologist? And the sort of knee-jerk response, and it's, I mean, even for myself, it's true. I want to help people. It's true. I want to help people. But it's not the only reason. And it's not a simple reason. It's not, it's not the only thing there that's, that's there for me around this job. And so I, I do think it's really important to unpack for yourself, what else is there that makes you want to do this job? Um, 
So there's all sorts of other reasons that could play into this, right? Something along the lines of like being a, a bit of a savior, you know, having a bit of a hero complex. Or um, maybe it's because of the role that you played in your family. So maybe you're a, a firstborn or an only child. So you have a lot of responsibility or you were parentified. So you were made to be the parent early on. So now you're used to taking care of people. You're used to being the caretaker. And so being a psychologist feels like a natural uh, role for you to play. That would be a really an interesting insight to bring to the selective the selection committee, right? That's That shows... R- reflection that shows that you are able to process and make meaning of your experiences Um, but whatever it is I think it's important to acknowledge that being a psychologist does hold some power we have a lot of power in the room you know we are people come to us in vulnerable states and we have to be really really careful with what we do with our power We have to be careful what words we use. We have to be careful how we make people feel. And so you have to be really self-aware of what you're do, of what you're doing in the room all the time and what you're projecting onto your clients. Um, so I, so I urge you to think about this long and hard. If your question, if your answer to the question is, I just want to help people dig deeper, what else is there? And if you want to, start thinking about this process, think about the archetype, um, the wounded healer, right? So all of us are a little bit wounded and maybe what we're doing through being the caretaker or the healer or the person that's holding space for someone else's pain is we're trying unconsciously to heal ourselves. And that's, that's really interesting, right? That's a, that's a, an interesting dynamic to play with. So if that's what's, what we're about and what we're after, what might that mean for our relationships with our with our with our patients and and maybe it's fine right there's there's an aspect of it that's absolutely fine be healed through this work i mean i can tell you for a fact that it there is something incredibly rewarding and almost euphoric about working with people because when there's when there's those aha moments or you know when you really feel like you like you're doing good work it's so validating. It's so um, exciting, actually. And so I do think it feeds you. It feeds a sense of being needed and being important and being um, someone that people hang on your every word, you know, and they, they listen to you and they thank you for listening to them. I mean, you know, people don't listen. People... Think about the last time you had someone truly listen to you. So here you are and you and yes, you're paying for it, but it still feels amazing to have someone truly listen to you. So people are grateful and it's nice to have people feel gratitude towards you. And listen, they don't always feel gratitude. Some people are not so grateful with you, you know, and, and don't like the things you say sometimes. Um, but for the most part, there is that power dynamic where you get made to feel like quite a special person. And so you've got to be aware of that. You've got to be aware of that dynamic. And I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to be said for just being aware of your power in any relationship. So if you're a white person speaking to a person of color, there's power. You have power, right? There's privilege and power. And it's the same if you are the doctor talking to your patient. It's the same if you are the parent talking to your child. And although we can't change these power dynamics necessarily, we can't shift the power 
and turn it upside down, but to be aware of it, to to include it into the experience, to 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 consider consider it, to to allow for it, I think is really important, um, and it makes it makes you a conscious person. You know, that's how that's how you can do this work and 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 be aware. So so that's that's pretty much all I want to talk about today. Thanks for listening. And as usual, pop me any questions you have um, and I will get back to you. We can continue this conversation. See you next time. Bye. This podcast is recorded at Edible Audio in Cape Town, South Africa. Edited by Edible Audio. Original music by Alex Smiley.